We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 in just a little bit. To start off, I want to address the question, what is a Christian? I feel like I did this some years ago, but I didn't try to look it up to figure out how I answered it then. Because in some ways, the answer is always the same. In some ways, there's different nuances to the answer. So, what is a Christian? If you call yourself a Christian, what are you calling yourself? Uh, What constitutes being a Christian? I'm going to give you several different answers. The first ought to be simple. It's from the complete book of Bible basics. So, according to the complete book of Bible basics, a Christian is... One who believes in and confesses Jesus as the Son of God who died for him or her. One who is identified with Christ and his church, usually through baptism. That's a really good answer. Uh, you can build on that. Uh, you could you know, include some other things, some other aspects of what does it mean to be a Christian, but that's a really good, concise answer. I would be happy with that, and I could just end it here and move on. But I've got several more answers. Is from The next one is from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. I don't like their answer as well. Uh, it seems a little more heady, uh, less down to earth. Their answer is Christian. Christian suffix ionus, so the ian part of Christian, was originally applied to slaves. It came to denote the adherence of an individual or party, a Christian, is a slave or adherent of Christ, one committed to Christ, a follower of Christ, whose daily life and behavior facing adversity is like Christ. That's all true, but because faith is not very explicit in that definition, I don't like it as well as the first one. Um, The person and the work of Christ is a little bit more assumed in that definition than the first. If we were to ask Martin Luther, Martin Luther... What is a Christian? I imagine he answered it different ways in different sermons, but at least in the one place that I found. Martin Luther's answer, what is a Christian? A Christian is not one who has no sin or feels no sin, but one to whom God reckons not his sin because of his faith in Christ. That's a good Luther answer. He emphasizes faith in Christ. Not your works of righteousness, not on any merit of your own, but solely on the faith of Christ. God reckons not any sin to your account. If I were to ask this individual, do you, anybody know who that is? 19th century. He died when he was only 42 years old. He was a Danish theologian, philosopher, social critic. Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard. He doesn't so much answer the question, what is a Christian? He just wants to clarify whether we are in fact truly Christians. He has a very interesting quote. Soren Kierkegaard said, If someone believes that he is a Christian and yet is indifferent to the fact that he is, then he truly is not a Christian. If it's easy, if if the uh, designation rolls easily off your tongue that you are a Christian but it seems of no real significance, Soren Kierkegaard would say, surely you are not a Christian. Because it means much more than just labeling yourself with that name. Well, I should ask my favorite Baptist, what is a Christian? So if I ask Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon, what is a Christian? Spurgeon's answer is, 
The distinguishing mark of a Christian is his confidence in the love of Christ and the yielding of his affections to Christ in return. That captures pretty nicely what a Christian is. Wholly given to Christ by faith, but because of your faith, because of what you believe about Christ and who he is, it completely transforms your life so that your affections uh, are drawn to him in all that you say and do. That would be Spurgeon's answer. Two more. One is anonymous. One is from a little book called, uh, or it was attributed to a book called Quick Quotes. So I don't know who said either of these, but they both add something to the conversation. What is a Christian? From Quick Quotes. Christianity is not a puzzle to be solved, but a way of life to be adopted. It is not a creed to be memorized, but a person to follow. We're going to find that to be true, assuming next week, even though it's Palm Sunday, I think I'll still be in Ephesians next week, and in Ephesians chapter 4, we will see that very explicitly stated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. But the very last quote, this anonymous quote, other than maybe the first one from the complete book of Bible basics, I really like the very last simple quote, what is a Christian? The religion of Jesus begins with the verb follow and ends with the word go. That's what a Christian is. It begins with the word, the verb follow. I will follow Christ. And it ends with the word go. He sends you out on a mission. That's a really good definition of a Christian as well. In Ephesians, if we were to answer the question, what is a Christian? I think you could do this in any New Testament letter. Uh, there are some answers to what a Christian is. So in the book of Ephesians, if I were to pick out what I think most concisely said, what is a Christian, it would be very famous verses from chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, which read, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who is saved by grace through faith, not of his own doing, not of her own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may what is a Christian? <coughs> Excuse me. A Christian is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that a Christian should walk in them. That's a really good definition of a Christian as well. All those are definitions of a Christian. So then, is a Christian really all that much different from anybody else? And on one level, certainly a Christian is dramatically different from anyone else. But depending on the context of the question, you could say, well, actually, we have a lot in common with everyone else. I mean, we're, I'm a sinner, just like anyone else is a sinner. And apart from the grace of God, uh, I will face the wrath of God in my sin, except for Christ. I have to eat and maintain life the same as anybody else. I've got a family, like most people have a family, or you were raised in a family, and you've got a variety of relationships and interests, and in some ways we're like, like everyone else in the world. And it sometimes is a problem that we try to portray ourselves as just like everyone else in the world. We're really no different. And sadly, sometimes it looks like we're not really any different. But Ephesians chapter 4, Paul answers the question, are we really that much different? And his answer is, resoundingly, Yes, you are different, dramatically different, substantially different, fundamentally different. 
in Ephesians chapter 4. If you're in a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 978. We'll read through these verses. I'll read through these verses one time. It'll take two weeks to go through them, I think. They read like this. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says there's a dramatic difference between what you were and what you are. He starts off by saying, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul's writing to Gentiles and he says, Don't walk like a Gentile. Walk means manner of life, the way you live. You're a Gentile, but don't live like a Gentile. If we were to contextualize this, Paul would say, You're an American, stop living like an American which sounds a little bit more shocking because most of us were raised with, a, well, depending on how old you are, you were raised with a different uh, appreciation of patriotism or God and country, and those two were intertwined probably more closely than they ought to have been. But Paul's making it very clear that if you're a Christian, your primary allegiance, your loyalty, your citizenship, it's not to any king or country or government it belongs to God in heaven, to Christ in heaven. So Paul would say, now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as Americans walk. Stop walking that way. And then if I read that description, which we're going to go through, it sounds very relevant to our culture today. What he describes the way Gentiles live, I read about that and if I got a newspaper every day, but every day on my thread or some of the the email newsletters I get, what's happening in our culture is exactly what Paul describes to the Ephesians in chapter 4 in these few verses. This should remind you of what Paul has said previously about the Gentiles and his description of them. Go back to chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. This is the one thing that Paul told us to remember in those first three chapters. So in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul wrote then... Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are we really that much different? It's the difference between being without God and without hope and being brought near to God by the blood of Christ. That's a pretty dramatic difference. He told you to remember that back in chapter 2. Now he's building on that in chapter 4. 
You're different. You need to live different. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. This is kind of a theme in the next three chapters of Ephesians. The first three chapters are doctrinal. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are more practical, or here's the application of it. Remember in chapter 4 and verse 1, he started off, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he describes, what does that walk, what does that life look like in the church, in the context of the church? The unity and the diversity that the church is meant to express to the glory of Christ, who is head over all, head over his body. But it doesn't just stop with we have different relationships and different values when the church gathers together. Paul also says, hey, the way you walk affects everything you do out in the world. In society, your walk is not to be like an American, like an American walks, like the Gentiles walk. We don't just live differently when we're together. We live differently even when we scatter apart. He says, I say and testify or I bear witness to in the Lord. And what he means here is Paul isn't saying, he's not answering the question like I started off. We listened to what Luther said and Spurgeon said and a couple books said. What Paul said, well, let me give you my take on what a Christian is. Let me tell you what I think. Here's what a Christian means to me. Paul's not saying, here's what a Christian means to me. Paul's saying, this is what the Lord says. This is by the authority that I have as an apostle, an official representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Christianity looks like. And there's no option for what I think it ought to look like. No, this is what Christ says. Christianity looks like. He's not giving his opinion. He's telling us what Christ wants us to know. So, how do Gentiles walk and how do they live? Well, that's what we just read in verses 17 and 19. Here's how they walk. Here's how they live. And Paul says, I don't want you to do that. There's a parallel passage, which anybody that has a study Bible or even cross-references in your Bible, you're going to see there's a parallel passage in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. So what's contained in just three verses in Ephesians is explodes into many more verses in Romans chapter 1. Here's how Gentiles walk. Here's what, here's what secular America looks like in Romans chapter 1 or in Ephesians chapter 4. And so they parallel one another. They uh, complement one another in the sense that you might use the word compliment when you're talking about the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. Because what we're talking about is what uh, theologians call total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that sin we can always be worse. Total depravity means we are as bad off as we could possibly be. Total depravity means that everything about us is affected by sin. There's no part of us not affected by sin. My emotions are affected by sin. My motivations are affected by sin. Everything is affected by sin. Total depravity. I'm not as bad as I could be, 
God has built certain restraints to restrain sin. But I'm as bad off as I could be. That's total depravity in Scripture. Now, it's interesting, a lot of commentators line up what Paul says in Ephesians and what Paul says in Romans and says it's the exact same progression. You see the same thing happening in both passages. And, and the more I looked at it, the more I'm not convinced that's true at all, I think they start from different starting points or they proceed along different lines. It looks like this. In Romans chapter 1, and if you're familiar with the passage, this isn't a shock to you, Romans spiral, a free fall. One bad thing leads to another. Man is spiraling out of control and his sin goes deeper and further away from God Almighty who is our creator. It gets worse and worse in Romans chapter 1. It's a spiral. It's a progression, not a good direction. But in Ephesians, it's some ways quite the opposite. Ephesians starts at the end and keeps answering the question, how did it get that way? So, so Romans starts here and says, this is how bad it got. Ephesians starts at the end and says, now let's take it back, why it happened that way. So they are kind of describing the same process, but one starts at the end. At the end. So they do complement one another, but they're not parallel in that they, they work through the sin the same way. It's positively fascinating in the worst possible way because we're talking about the sinfulness of man. So Paul starts off, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Humanity has a thinking problem. That's where Paul starts. He's looking at mankind, he says, problem is, we, every thought starts with ourselves. I will determine what is good, what is not good, what is valuable, what is not valuable. I become the center of my, own, of my own reality. Here's what it means to me. And who are you to question me? And who am I to question you? We all get to decide for ourselves what is true. That's, that's in thinking where we are at the center. We become the determiner of truth for us. This is true for me. This is true for you. Okay. Because we all determine our own reality, our, our own truthfulness. Whatever is true for you. We have this oh, let me, futility. He talks about this being futility, which is the, it's a word in the Old Testament, it's the word that's translated vanity. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, where you find the word over and over, vanity of vanities, all it's striving after the wind. Everything you do is a waste of your time apart from God. If you start with you, you've got real no meaning or significance or purpose to life because you've started with you. And significance doesn't come when you start with you, it starts with God. He talks about this futility, which is also what you find in Romans chapter 1, where it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. So mankind has a problem. Our secular America has a problem in their thinking. Thinking, they start with themselves. They don't need God. You know, there was a motto some years ago, I don't know that I've heard it so much, we just live it out now in our secular culture. 
but it was on buses, I know, in England, and it was called Be Good Without God. Be Good Without God. We don't need God to be good. Well, when they wound up eliminating God from the equation that you don't need to start with God, we found out what kind of goodness we wound up with. And it's not in the right direction. And it's not good. In Romans, it talks about becoming futile in our thinking. Paul in Ephesians says the Gentiles are, have a futility in their thinking. You start with themselves. Where do you start with knowledge? Where do you start with wisdom? Proverbs tells you fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you don't start with God, then you already got a problem in your thinking because you're headed down the wrong path. It will lead you no place good. It starts with God. And in Romans, they've eliminated God. The Gentiles, in their thinking, have eliminated God. So that's where it starts. The point is this. Paul is telling Christians to think and live differently to start with God and without rival interests. Our, our secular culture has lots of interests and they don't start with God. It doesn't mean that I can't recreate in some ways or I can't enjoy, uh, entertain myself in lots of ways, but if I don't start with God, then I've become just like a Gentile. I've become just like a secular American culture that says you don't need God to recreate rightly. Or entertain yourself rightly. Paul said, you got a thinking problem. Don't think like an American. Don't think like a Gentile. Verse 18 says they are darkened in their understanding, which is interesting because that's also what Romans 121 says. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Here it says they're Darkened in their understanding. But I told you that Ephesians is starting at the end. Uh, or he's, uh, We've got this problem of thinking. Why do we have the problem of thinking? And, and in the Greek, it's not they are darkened in their, their understanding. In the Greek, it's called a perfect participle. In other words, it's looking back. It's explaining the reason why they have futility in their minds. So a better translation, and if you have a New American Standard Bible, yours would be very close to this. A better rendering would be having been darkened in their understanding. So Gentiles have, they think uh, with futility because their, their understanding is darkened. How can you think clearly if your understanding is darkened? If you're not starting with God, your understanding is darkened. So that explains the reason why there's vanity in their thinking. It's interesting, then, the next phrase is also a perfect participle, which means it's explaining, well, if you ask the question, how is it that they're darkened in their understanding? How did that come to be? Where did that come from? The answer is, having been alienated from the life of God. So it's a progression. It keeps going back one step further. Gentiles have futility in their minds. Why? They've been darkened in their understanding. Well, why is that? They're alienated from the life of God. And the only source of life and light is God. Life here is the word zoe in the Greek. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are three words for life. Uh, everybody has at least two of those. And if you have eternal life, if Christ is your Lord and your Savior, you have Zoe life. 
which is often used, the adjective often comes uh, eternal with it. Uh, the first type of life in the Greek, we, our Greek or our English word would be bios, biology. So uh, biology, biological life means you are breathing, you've got blood circulating, you've got a skeletal system. It's, it's the biology of life. We all share that in common. Everybody here is still with me, so you're all awake. You're all, we all share biology. That's a certain kind of life. That's not, that's not the life of God. That's not what's being described there as they are without the life of God. The life of God is Zoe life, not biological life. The second type of life in the Greek is the word suke. We get, I think, psychology from that. I didn't really double check that. I just had it in the back of my mind that was true. But suke, what that is, is while we all have biological life, Ben's got a personality and interests, and, and uh, his life is a little different from my life. I mean, we both have to breathe the same. We both have to eat the same. We both have to drink water the same. That, the biology is the same, but everybody has their own unique personality. No two people are exactly alike, in spite of the fact that we share uh, an exact same biology. That's suke life, our personality. Zoe life is life that comes from God. Zoe life is what gets you from your biological life in the here and now, and one day you will lay down your head and die. If you have Zoe life, you never really die. You live eternally within the kingdom of heaven. And your body will be resurrected unto life because you have Zoe life. It's in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. It looks like this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking about Christ, speaking about the Son of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Christ was life. And that life is Zoe. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What did we read in Ephesians? We've got mankind that can't think clearly. Their understanding is darkened. They have no light. They have no light because they don't have the life of God. Because that's where light comes from. It comes from life in Christ. They lack that. This is what the, way, the word Zoe and all over in the Gospel of John. Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Zoe. If you don't have the light of Zoe, you walk in darkness, which is what the Gentiles do in Ephesians chapter 4. They walk in darkness because they have no life. Jesus said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the Zoe. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then said to Thomas in chapter 14 and verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the Zoe. No one who comes to the Father, no one comes to the Father except through me. The only light there is, the only life there is that transcends life under the sun is life in Christ. And so if you take it back to where we were, oh, I forgot this one, John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, Zoe, to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What is it to have eternal life? It is to know God. I thought eternal life meant I got to go to heaven. Well, if you have eternal life, you are part of the kingdom of heaven. But eternal life at its core is to know God. I'm not interested in knowing God. That's because you don't have life. And you walk in darkness. And your understanding is darkened. And you're vain in your thinking. Now, back to Ephesians. They have futility in their minds because they're darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding because they're alienated from the life of God. That word alienated, you'll find it in Colossians chapter 1, which is over a couple pages, but I'm not going to look there. Well, maybe I will look there. It's, it's only over, a, right after Ephesians is Philippians, right after Philippians is Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The Bible couldn't make it more dramatic when it talks about salvation and conversion. You once were alienated without God, without hope, strangers to everything God had possibly revealed. You were walking in darkness. Uh, you had no understanding. Everything you did was vain and tainted by your sin. And God dramatically made all the difference in the world by his grace. He has rescued you out of that by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in Colossians 1. Why don't they have the life of God? He says, well, because of the ignorance that is in you. It keeps going back. I mean, if you, it's like when you're talking to a toddler and they keep saying, well, Why? You give them a reason. Well, why is that? And you give them another reason. That's exactly what's happening. They've been darkened in their understanding. Well, why is that? Well, they're alienated from the life of God. Well, why are they alienated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Which doesn't sound too bad. But it's a lot worse than what it sounds. Because ignorance sounds like, well, just somebody needs to tell them. If you're ignorant, you just don't know. You don't know any better. I mean, somebody that's ignorant, they're just kind of a, nobody's taking the time to tell them any different. And if you merely told them, now they're going to do the right thing. So they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And what's your question? Why? Why are they ignorant? And the answer is because of their hardness of heart. The English standard says, due to their hardness of heart, it's the exact same preposition that was just used. It drives me crazy when translators decide they want to mix it up for variety's sake. I think it's, it would be so much better to, keep, to stay consistent because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart. It's the same word. So the answer to why are they ignorant, it's because their heart is so hard. That's why they're ignorant. They don't want to know. They know where it will lead them if they admit there's a God who created them. And one day they will stand before that holy God and they don't want to go down that road. So they close the door 
and they're not interested in thinking in those categories, they will be good without God, thank you very much. And they wind up in a dark place. And it doesn't look good. And Paul says, don't be like that. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21 explain these two sentences or phrases really well. It's because of the ignorance that is in them, and that is because of their hardness of heart. Romans 1 puts it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's not ignorance. That's I know what is true, and I suppress it. I refuse to admit it. I refuse to think in those categories. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem isn't that God has not revealed himself adequately. The problem is you've got hard hearts that refuse to, to entertain what is obviously true. That this didn't happen by random evolutionary processes that we wound up with all this complexity of life and diversity of life. That speaks of a God high and mighty. But the world doesn't want to entertain that thought. It talks about their hardness of heart, which is an interesting word. It's used many places in Scripture. One really interesting example is in Mark chapter 3. This is in a, a story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And it reads like this. Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the religious authorities, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And he paused and he waited and they were silent. You know, pollsters will get an answer. If they're looking for an answer, they can craft a question so that they know the answer they'll probably get. So the pollsters can come up with, uh, do most Americans support uh, abortion on demand, or do most uh, Americans think it should be outlawed in, in majority of cases? Depending on how you ask the question, you're kind of, you're going to get a certain answer, probably. If Jesus had said to the religious authorities, is it lawful to labor on the Sabbath? They would, have been, they would have popped right up. No, it's not right to labor on the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't ask that question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? To That's an easy question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good to save a life? The answer is yes. If Jesus asked the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm and to kill? The answer is no. You don't, do, you don't do that on any day of the week, let alone the Sabbath day, to kill somebody, to harm somebody. But these religious authorities have nothing to say because they know where it's going. They know where it's leading. And so they have nothing to say. 
Jesus looked, uh, and he looked around them. I should have capitalized that because I like to do that. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch his hand. He stretched out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus just saved a life on the Sabbath. They just plotted to kill a life on the Sabbath. And they had nothing to say. And Jesus is angered or grieved at their hardness of heart. This isn't rocket science. Like, I don't need to have a huge debate between the creationist and the evolutionist. God has made it plain that his power and wisdom has created all this. But we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because we don't want to be held accountable. But you will be held accountable, and I will be held accountable, because there is a God. And one day, every soul will stand before him, rise before him, and they will either be condemned in their own sin and suppression of what is true, or they will, by the righteousness of Christ, they will be declared justified. Freely, fully forgiven in Christ. Back to Ephesians. Because people act according to how they think, remember we keep practice every kind of impurity. Sinful behaviors and pursuits are not the cause of the problem, they're a result of the problem. So what I read about, you know, in, in certain whatever conservative sources, and they talk about all the sexual immorality that is steeping in our culture, you look at that and you think, this is the problem. That they're doing that in schools and they're doing that in libraries and they're doing that. In... No, that's not, that is the problem, but that's just a symptom. It didn't start there with all the stuff that you pull your hair out and you're grieved and you're angry. What does it come to? It started with when people stopped recognizing God as for who he is and thanking him. It started when people were suppressing the truth. It started when people hardened their hearts. And when you do all that and you don't start with God, this is what you eventually wind up with. And that's exactly what we're experiencing in America. And Paul says we need to avoid that. He talks about becoming callous. This is basically a spiritual leprosy. Uh, it was interesting. I did a little looking on the internet about leprosy. It's still a disease in certain parts of the world, hundreds of cases, and there are some very uh, unsettling pictures uh, or videos, and I'm like, I couldn't stomach those. I wasn't going to play those for you as well. But leprosy is a disease uh, that, that runs its course. It can take decades, and, and you become calloused and insensitive. You lose feeling, and that's what creates the problem because you hurt yourself or you get infection. Things happen, and, and your body just deteriorates away because you don't know any better, and your body isn't fighting it the way it should, and, and you wind up in it's a very ugly disease. And that's what's happening here in verse 19. These people have become callous. Their, heart, their consciences are calloused so that the things that might have bothered them, I read a story from a, about 100 years ago. A pastor preached this story from 100 years ago. It was in light of World War I, and he talked about uh, an officer gave his testimony of what he witnessed a German soldier do and, and how awful it was, and it made him sick. 
And then he saw the same thing the next day. And it didn't make him quite as sick the second day. And about a month later, he found himself doing the same thing. That's the callousness that's in verse 19. We've become a calloused culture. We've lost our conscience. Because our culture refuses to, uh, refuses to acknowledge God. It is not in God we trust, in spite of what's on our coins. Talks about sensuality. Uh, sensuality is interesting here because uh, William Barclay, a commentator who's, on some ways, he's a little liberal, but he's also very insightful in many other ways. William Barclay says, you know, the natural tendency of sin, like early on, is, is you want to hide your sin. You're ashamed. You're guilty. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They, they ate from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, and they went and hid themselves, and they covered themselves because they were ashamed. And that's what you do early on. But as you become calloused, you become more open and brazen about your sin. And you parade it. And you take pride in it. That's our culture. That's our country. We take pride in it. We parade it. And if you don't like it, the problem is you. Sensuality. They've given themselves up to sensuality, which is very interesting because if you know the Romans passage, it tells you three times God gave them up to do what was unnatural. God gave them up to their sin, and it got worse and worse. So in Romans, three times God gives them up. In Ephesians, they gave themselves up. Both are true. I read in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I read in Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Both are true. God gave them up. But they, here they're responsible. They gave themselves up to their brazen sensuality. I think older translations use the word like lasciviousness, licentiousness, lewdness, sensuality. And then finally, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The idea here is no matter how low they get, they always think there's a new, there's a way they can, they can be, go even lower than they were. I've witnessed that in my lifetime. I mean, it used to be back in the day where there were certain sexual sins, like you didn't live with somebody before you were married. That was the, you know, that was, eventually that got tolerated, and then it's like, well, you know, but we'll never tolerate homosexuality. Well, no, then eventually that got tolerated, and then, oh, well, now we're actually going to call it gay marriage. And then eventually that gets tolerated, and now we've got every manner of perversion in our culture. And do you think we've reached the end of the line? You're wrong. Some of the things I'm reading that are still being promoted down the pike for our culture, it's going to get worse, not better, barring a gracious intervention of God where people repent like they did in Nineveh in Jonah's day. Every kind, they're greedy for it. They want more because like any enslaving sin, no matter what you think, if you give in to your sin, that somehow you will solve the problem, it only creates a greater appetite. That's what pornography is. You don't give in to pornography and solve the problem. Every time you give in to that, you create a greater appetite for what will destroy your soul. And Paul says that is not the way you learn Christ. And where does it start? He's not saying, he's not looking at the church saying, I think you've become 
and sensual and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He's saying you start by guarding the way you think. Because if you're not careful how you think, it will affect the way you live. It starts with how you think. That's where he's going to take us next week with minding our mind and recognizing what is true so that we don't look like this awful picture of a secular America of the way Gentiles live. What are your comments and questions? Alex. For the little bit of interaction they had, they knew, they knew, Gentiles knew Jews considered them dogs because they treated them like dogs. Uh, the Gentiles, they, there was, yes, there was hostility and animosity between the two groups. I think, I mean, I, I'm not an expert because the Bible's written from a Jewish perspective, so I know what the Jews called the Gentiles. My suspicion is the Gentiles really didn't give a flip about the, Gen, the Jews. You know, you, you live weird. Uh, they considered the Jews atheists, for the most part. Christians atheists because they didn't worship all the gods. Gentiles worshipped many gods. Jews, like, we don't believe in Venus and Jupiter and, you know, Mercury and all these. Those are, those are uh, the Greek gods. I don't know the Roman counterpart. But all these gods. Uh, secular culture, they believe in many gods. Jews believed in one God, so they were con the Gentiles considered the Jews uh, very archaic, old school, and atheistic. Technically, I mean, it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? But if you take it back as far as you want to go, we sin because we're sinners. It's because of our sin nature is why we sin. And left unchecked, that sin nature gets more and more expressive, more and more calloused, more and more hardened, and more and more brazen. So, uh, why does an apple tree bear apples? It's because it's in the nature of an apple tree to bear apples. You know, when does an apple tree bear apples? Well, I don't know. You plant that apple tree, it's a seedling. Rich is here. Rich, how many years does it take to, for an apple tree to bear apples? Where is he at? He slipped out. I'm going to guess 10 years, you know. But it's still an apple tree. Even before it bears apples, it's still an apple tree. But eventually it's going to bear apples. I am born in sin. I will sin because that's my nature. So, and then it just becomes this awful cycle where my sin increases. I become more hardened. I become more callous. Somebody else? Sarah. Uh, you definitely need to do more. My answer probably won't be entirely satisfying. Uh, and it's not complete because the Bible, in some ways the Bible doesn't complete, like here's the steps 1 through 20 of what you need to do so it will never happen. But basically, uh, what the not only don't be this, you need to be that. So stop stealing, start sharing out of what your abundance is. Stop lying and start telling the truth. So it's not enough just to say, I'm going to stop sinning, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm tired of doing the wrong thing. I'm just sitting the wrong thing. And if all the time I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, 
And the more I'm thinking about how I don't want to do the sin, I'm thinking about the sin, and I'm like, ooh, that's really interesting, that sin. Oh, no, no, I'm not thinking about the sin. You know, if all I'm doing is saying I don't want to do the sin, it's eventually going to be attractive. You need to replace that attract, that desire, that unholy desire, with a new attraction in Christ and replace it with the positive. So he will go into that, though all the nuance and the details of that, uh, you know, it's more than he's going to go into in a few verses. But it's thinking newly, thinking newly. Uh, not just what you don't want to do, but what you do want to do. Jonathan and Howard. Developing new habits. If I'm, not, if I'm not taking in God's word, the world is affecting my thinking far more than I'm willing to admit. Because it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. Howard? Well, I mean, that's a great question, but that's not a short answer. I mean, the short answer is you spend, spend time in his word finding out what, what he says is true and then how do you obey it? How do you put it into practice? It means gathering with the church because the church, uh, the diversity of gifts that's brought into the church is going to be for my benefit. It's going to be f for my purity. Uh, it's going to draw me closer to Christ. Uh, it's going to include prayer. It's going to include whatever measure of accountability you know, if I'm struggling, struggling in one particular area, I need, to, I need to own up to that sin, probably with another Christian, to help keep me accountable in that particular area. Uh, things like that. But it's a lifelong process. Joash, did you have something? Yeah. yeah. Cindy? Yeah. Whatsoever things are pure or lovely, of good report, however that, that verse goes. Yeah, I mean... At any given moment, any, any one scripture may be exactly what you need to win the day or win the moment. But when I'm not constantly taking in scripture, I'm not giving the Holy Spirit much to work with. I'm expecting him to throw out a life raft when I've, I've not learned, I've not taken advantage of what he's given me to do. So the Holy Spirit takes, as I take in God's word, it gives God's spirit something to bring to my mind and my heart and my conscience to give me new affections. I pray for new affections. I love Jonathan Edwards' idea of religious affections. Uh, that the best way to get rid of unholy desires is to pray for new affections. And affection is so positive. It's what Christ would have you to be and do and think. A desire seems to me in scripture not always true, but desires so often are associated with fleshly desires, what you want to do. They're selfish. They're self-centered. And affection is, God, give me something higher. And it will eliminate the desire because the affection is so noble. It's so pure. It's so redeeming. Somebody else? Joe. Yeah. yeah. What he taught doctrinally, yeah, doctrinally and in theory, now he's saying that here's what it looks like in your culture right now. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Randy... And then Deborah, okay. Deborah? Yeah. Yeah. What I, what I see in verse 19 is, is no surprise because it's the result of, of what they've committed themselves to. And that's, that should grieve me. So we were all there. We were all there. Yeah. 
And it's easy, it's easy for the church to hold placards and say, you know, this is sin. And, you know, you'll, you know, some of the awful placards you may see. You're right. If all we do is express anger, we've missed the point. Uh, there is grief associated with this. And one day, because you know what? The world's not going to find their solution apart from God. There is no, you are not going to find some wonderful identity and fulfillment apart from God. So they are, they are a train headed to, well, sorry for the train analogy. They're a, they're a truck headed, headed to crash. I mean, they're gonna, they're, it's going to end poorly. And the church needs to position themselves in a, in a way that we can lovingly share the gospel because we've cared. It's only by the grace of God that we're not that. Uh, Randy. Right. So it's nuanced. It's nuanced because there's times, I think, as a Christian, you have to come out from among them and be separate. But there's other times you need to engage. So I think uh, is, even though the author's, you know, <laughs> it's a good book written by somebody who fell off the wagon. But uh, Unfashionable is a really good book. And, it, and he talks about in the book, the church needs to consider itself an outpost. You know, an outpost, not a refuge. Not, you know, this retreat. It's an outpost. An outpost of the kingdom of God. You know, and as an outpost, you know, we, we're supposed to be building bridges, reaching out, you know, offering safety and sanctity and an alter, alternative to, to what is going to destroy you. Uh, but, but oftentimes the church, it's easy for me as a church to, to view myself as this is just a really safe place and I'm glad I'm here. And, you know, oh, we got to go out in the world, but make it quick. You know, like, so it's nuanced exactly how we engage with the world without compromising with the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, that answer will be a little different under some circumstances for every Christian. In some ways, it will always be the same. Cindy, and that probably should close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that order, and in that order. You follow, and then you go. You don't just go until you've learned to be a good follower, but it's follow and go. That's, that was a pretty good summation, too. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.